Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm excited for this one. I, I feel like I say that every episode, but this one is its a really good one. I hope you'll stick around. Rhonda Kaysen is on the show today. Rhonda is a reporter for the New York Times. She created the Write at Home column in the New York Times. She writes the Ask Real Estate column. It's a fixture in the Sunday Times. And uh, she has a new book out that she co-authored with Michelle Higgins. It's called The New York Times Write at Home, How to Buy, Decorate, Organize, and Maintain Your Space. And it's a it's a comprehensive book. It's the kind of book that I always dreamt about writing, honestly. It's one of those things that, like, at the back of my head, I'm always like, I should do something about the home buying process and then the home maintenance process. Because obviously, I, I've been around it for a long time, too. You know, I worked at Thistle House for 15 years. and that was my world. But Rhonda beat me to it. <laughs> no hard feelings, though. It's a great book. You should definitely check it out. But Rhonda's got a lot of different perspectives on sort of where we're at with, with the quarantine and, and COVID and all that. If you're like me and you're following this coronavirus story and realizing that there are just a million tentacles to it, housing feels like one of those tentacles and it feels like it was worth exploring in a deep dive. So I wanted to talk to Rhonda about that, sort of get her perspective on if we may be headed towards another cliff, or if people should be buying houses right now. So we talk about that. We talk about how the concept of home has changed during this time. We're all using our homes differently. I'm here in the corner of my attic, where I've built a little desk and made a little recording studio slash home office that I wouldn't have even thought was a functional corner of my attic four or five months ago. But now it's become my office, and I spend a lot of time up here and, and do a lot of work up here. So yeah, all of our concepts of home have really changed. But Rhonda also gives us the big picture and talks about sort of how our concept of home has been evolving for many, many years now. She's reported a lot on HGTV, which obviously I have a fascination with, as does she. <laughs> so we, we traded notes on sort of why people are flocking to HGTV right now and how HGTV has sort of changed our perception of our houses over its 25-year history. And I know Rhonda because she wrote an amazing feature about this old house's 40th anniversary last year for the New York Times. And really, it was a thorough, thorough look at the history of this old house. She talked to all the hosts of the show. She talked to the creator of the show. She went back and interviewed old homeowners. She dug up clips of Donald Trump being interviewed by Bob Vila at the opening of Trump Tower back in the 80s. So she had studied this old house to write that feature story. So I wanted to sort of hear about my old job from her perspective. What did she learn? Because these are a lot of people that, you know, I was there 15 years. I never met Bob Vila. I never met Steve Thomas. Never talked to them. I have no idea what they're like. But Rhonda got to meet all these people, got to interview them. So we talked a little bit about this old house at the end, too. That's what we're doing today. So here's my interview with New York Times reporter Rhonda Kaysen. I'm curious, just sort of personally for you, how how the quarantine's been going, and you know how you've how you've dealt with it, like on a personal and, and family level. I was a little. I well, the beginning, I felt like I was at an advantage because I had worked. I worked from home for a long time, and yep. I have I've got kids, and so I was used to juggling snow days and sick days with deadlines, and so I felt like I was this higher caliber. But it's it's a way different beast. We had to set up homeschooling for two kids. My sure. husband was suddenly home. We're yeah. all there. My daughter ended up working in the same room as me, next to me for a long, for most of the school oh, year. Wow. Um, so it you know I think now 
months into this, I feel like I've kind of lost the thread. I mean, it's just that you're living in the house in every room of the house so much all the time. And everybody is that it's, it's like my, you know, I have a pretty like a type standards of how the house should look. Sure. And, you know, it's hard to keep that up when you have like art camp happening in the dining room. Yeah. Especially with kids. It's, it's, yeah, as you say, it's, it's art projects and homeschool and then, yeah, trying to all the things that would have been in an office or now, you know, scattered on the oh. dining room table or around the house. Right. So I feel like my work hasn't changed much like that. I'm used to, it's like, it's just having everybody here all the time. And I also was very used to having this very quiet house for many hours a day right. because for all those hours. And so it was very much my domain when I would work and I'd have this quiet office and I've had to totally let that go. Yeah. So like everybody else, I'm kind of in it with, with the rest of the crowd. Yeah. Do you find that in having to sort of juggle all these things that you have to sort of be more focused on your work and just sort of like when you have that time to sit down and write, like you've got to sort of know what you're doing and just get it done very quickly because there's always going to be something else to sort of triage? I guess so. I mean, I think that's the place that I am most able to adjust because okay. I'm used to that. Like, I've that's always happened where there's just some sort of chaos that comes up. I think there was a period when the pandemic first started working in the news business, and my husband's also in the news business, we were just under enormous pressure. And so that was very, with the kids trying to set the children up at school, yeah. homeschooling, with sort of the biggest news story of our lifetimes right. happening, then it was very intense. And it, you know, there was a, I needed to focus and I would find myself sometimes just quickly, you know, saying like, you know, one house is the same as two quarters and just <laughs> putting the answer in and going right. back to my thing rather than helping my or, you know, with homework. But now that that I think the new, you know, I've returned to sort of more of my general pace, I can find the rhythm. And, and my children are older, so they, they know that I'm working, they understand deadline, they know to be quiet, so they're, and they're more independent. I think if I had toddlers, I have friends of mine who have, like, very little children, um, I think it's just absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. You know, I think that that age is just very hard with this many people at home yeah. for this long. No, ours are ours are seven and four. And so the seven-year-old was in school during all, you know, she was in first grade. And it, it was nice in that way that there was only one of them to sort of do, you know, my, my four-year-old's still not in school yet. So like right. the, the school assignments and stuff, we could sort of focus on with my daughter or, you know, if my wife needed to work, I could step in and help with the homeschool or vice versa. But I can imagine, yeah, if, if both of them were in school at this younger age, that would be so much trickier. Right. So I, mine are nine and, and tw- or 13 now. Yep. So they were, they were the older one. Definitely. He's, you know, more you have to just sort of check what's happening, you right. know, because he like disappears and like, where'd you go? But the younger one needed a lot more handholding, but they, but they don't need the same attention that a four-year-old needs. So Definitely. I could focus better, but it's still, you've got to kind of find a way to help them through being at home all the time for all of their life experiences. Yeah. It's strange just sort of how the whole concept of home <laughs> has evolved in these four months. Like, I'm curious, that must come up in your reporting all the time, right? That just we're using our homes in such different ways now. Yeah. Well, it's wild. I mean, it's, I, you know, I went from having a sort of a niche beat to suddenly being like the story of America. And that was a really strange, surreal feeling. I've had a strong philosophy that your home is like a palette where you're supposed to live your life and it's supposed to work for you and you can be flexible with it. And I feel like this experience has like stretched that concept to its limits. Mm. And I think our homes are getting more work than they've ever gotten, more than maybe they're even supposed to. You know, so I think appliances are breaking down and keeping up with it all is intense. But it's also really interesting because, you know, if you think of your home as a place of shelter and a place to 
kind of a respite from the world. And it's I've become that on overdrive. It's really become the only safe place, right? Like it feels like you step outside now and just walking outside is a stressful experience. Sure in a very existential way. And so your home is, you know, in one way we're all like really sick of our homes right now, but on the other hand, they're like, it's like the one place where you can be like, okay, I know I'm, I'm safe in here. I know I'm not going to get COVID here. Right. So it's almost become a doubly more nurturing space, but it's also at the same time when I think we all have a lot of cabin fever for it. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like I, I think about in my time at this old house, like I was always really fascinated by sort of the houses of like 100, 150 years ago, especially like, you know, farmsteads and homesteads and stuff where the home wasn't just a place to sleep, but it was, you know, it was a place to produce goods. It was a, a little, mm. you know, small factory. Like you had a smokehouse to to cure your meats and root cellars to store food and that kind of stuff. And in some weird way, I feel like we're starting to get back to that. Just thinking about like people growing gardens and stuff has been a big trend during this time. That's Fascinating. You're so right. Yeah. Yes. Well, I know I, I planted a victory garden. Yeah. And I, and it was weird. Like every, you know, so many people did. And, and the garden center actually became like, I really like going to the garden center. And I used to, I remember going like dad as a kid, it was kind of cool and kind of really boring at the same time. Right. And, you know, and then now it was, it became, it was like the first place I remember going, you know, I'm in Northern New Jersey. So it was like the first place as we kind of came out of lockdown in May where it felt safe and it was outdoors. Right. You felt like it was a little okay. And it was like, the, it was so cool. Like I would just go, I would, there's a really huge, amazing one. That's a pretty far drive, but I was willing to go all the way there just because it was so great. And then the kids were like, loved it. Like it was like the best day we'd had in so long. And it's been really great growing vegetables this right. summer. We've had so much fun because it's life. It's simple. I don't know. It's, it's this chore that is very, you know, you can't bring your phone out to the garden when you're watering. Yeah. You don't have to know what terrible things are happening. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a, it's a little, uh, it's a retreat from the rest of the world and you can kind of just, you can, you can zen out out there. Right. I mean, I don't, I haven't, I, we're not productive enough for me to fully understand how this is at all sustainable living. I mean, I, so I have the most expensive tomatoes I've ever owned in my right. life, yep. but they're fun and they're really good. You know? Yeah. And I don't know about you, like for me, one of the things that always helped me back from gardening, I tried it, we've been in this house like 12 years and I tried mm -hmm. to set up a garden the first couple of years and it just wasn't worth the time or the money investment because we were never home. Like, you know, we'd go, mm -hmm. we'd get it established and then like go away July 4th or like mid July. And it's right at the peak of sort of when everything is sunniest and hottest. And if you're not there watering every day or two, everything dies out. And all of a sudden these tomatoes that you've been nurturing since like Memorial Day, you know, they wilt and die and just like, oh, come on. So in a way, being home has been, you know, I, I haven't planted a garden this year, but I know for a lot of the people that have, this is kind of the only time where you know you're going to be home all summer and can tend to it and weed it and water it. Definitely. I mean, that's why we did it. And yeah. that's why we didn't do it past years. And I, I wrote a few stories about gardening and what people are doing with your yards. And that was absolutely the line was we were supposed to go to Italy. And so that's not happening. So I'm yeah. going to plant a vegetable garden. And you really do have to be home every day and, right. or you have to, you know, get some kid in the neighborhood that you trust to do it. But you really do have to to be there. So I think that the reality in the past is I never did it because I just wasn't around. I mean, I had other things going on. Yeah. You you wrote a column, too, just kind of on this 
this food idea for a minute about neighbors sort of sharing ingredients and, you know, not being able to get things at the store or, you know, having excess and just sort of, I feel like that piece of it has been really nice too, of sort of reconnecting with the people around you. Yes. And I, you know, we put out these two Adirondack chairs on our front lawn this uh-huh. summer. I feel like we can spy on the neighborhoods, I guess. And it's so nice because we sit out there under a tree and then neighbors walk by and there's so many people coming by and everyone chats. And I've seen so many more people. And I think, I think the sense of neighborhood life has really shifted because these are the people you can socialize with. So you become friends and friendly with people that you normally wouldn't necessarily be, but it's easier to sit in a lawn chair across from them than from a friend across town. So I think it, you know, I, and I have talked to a number of people just in the neighborhood who say that they really like that, that that's something that they've noticed has been really nice is that there's a more of a, sense of community that you are talking to people around you because you know they haven't seen anyone else <laughs> right yeah and, and it, a lot of people are going for walks a lot more i know my family certainly is and it's easy just to kind of stop by on people and wave to them and we had this nice there's a guy whose house we walk by every day that has these beautiful rose bushes and they're like these mm. wild roses and we noticed he had a for sale sign and we said oh you're moving he said yeah you know we're finally selling the house and we're like do you mind if we dig up like one of your roses and put it in our yard? And he was like, yeah, no, definitely. And as we were doing it, he's like, do you want to see the rest of my garden? And just walked us around, you know, his whole backyard. And he had ponds back there and all sorts of beautiful perennials. And this is a guy, again, we've lived in this neighborhood 12 years. <laughs> like if you asked how many people or what age or any, we would have no idea. And, you know, we had this nice little connection <laughs> just because we'd walk by his house every day. And he said, I love watching your family walk by, you Aww. know. It's just a nice, it is a nice time to connect with people, I guess. Yeah, no, I had a similar experience with a neighbor that was moving that we hadn't met before. And I was like, what are your plans? And Right. And you just suddenly, you all have the time too. You know, no one's going anywhere. Right. So I'm curious, like the the Ask Real Estate column that you write for New York Times, the questions that have come in for that, how have those changed over the last four months? That was like, I think the first thing I noticed, that was, it was an enormous change. I mean, it has always been a relatively popular column. I get a good number of questions and it was like overnight, the tenor of the questions changed, the volume of questions changed. It went through the roof of a number of questions. And there was certainly in March, there was just an overwhelming number of questions full of a huge amount of anxiety from readers. And I got to the point where I was thinking of running it more than once a week just to kind of keep up with the questions because some of them were so urgent. Whereas before it was ever, I felt saw saw it as a slice of life New Yorker kind of column. So it was like my upstairs neighbor's kids are so terrible. What, you know, why do they have babies? You know, and it was just funny, you know, and it was like, but not always, but serious. And you'd have issues with the landlord's horrible, but it was this, you got this insight into the, what it's like to live in New York. And then it went from really crisis control for people. And it was, I I lost my job. We both lost our jobs and I can't pay the rent. What do we do? We, I'm pregnant. I want to leave the city. My landlord won't let me out of the lease. I'm terrified. What do I do? Somebody in the building has COVID and I don't know who, what, what do I do? So it was suddenly these very existential, panicked, serious questions. And it still is. I mean, it's the volume has come down a bit. There's more redundancy because I think some of the questions are similar. If I get a question that's not COVID related, I'm kind of surprised. I'm like, wow. oh, why are you asking about this? You know, yeah. So it's now become, they're reopening focused, but people aren't, some, but nobody in the building is wearing masks. What do I do? And so it certainly has changed and you can see how much, you can sort of looking through the lens of life through that 
those that inbox, you can see right. how much life has changed. I had a March 9th, I had a question about, is now a good time to buy as the country was shutting down? And I remember that one being like, well, to the next week, it was just a flood of anxiety. Yeah. What do you think about sort of that, the the eviction issues and things like that? Just people, you know, so many people are unemployed or on unemployment right now and having trouble meeting rent. Like, what what's available to them? How do they, you know, how do people right. navigate that? You need a place to live during this time. Right. I mean, so, so far, the non-payments have not, at least the last I checked, and it's been a, you know, I haven't kept up with it every week, but until recently, the non-payments were not as bad as people predicted. And okay. I think a lot of that was because of the $600 a week unemployment yep. bump and also the PPP funding. So I think I'm concerned with July, you know, with that money running out for the unemployment benefits, August rent or being an issue or September rent. So there was a bump in an eviction, I'm, I'm sorry, in non-payment, um, but not as much. Now, so the evictions were sort of halted until June. Some some could resume between, from June to August, and August they can resume. You know, I think tenant lawyers are very concerned we're going to start to see a wave of evictions in New York. So there's been right. a freeze in the court, so it's hard to say what's going to happen. Landlords, I know by and large, have been holding the line. They haven't been offering rent reductions. They haven't been offering tenants any compromises. Sometimes they're letting them use a security deposit. But aside from that, they were across the board holding the line. And that was pretty much the line from the from both the, the tenant side and the landlord side were in agreement that that's what was happening. And that was very true. Now, if you look at the rental market, though, now that the market's reopened, because in New York, it was frozen. You couldn't rent anything at mm. all. I mean, you could you you could only see virtual listings. A lot of buildings weren't letting people move in and out. So there wasn't any movement. It just sort of froze. And now rents are really, you're starting to see rents really coming down, um, particularly like in Midtown and areas near business. I've heard that the rental market's still more stable in the more residential neighborhoods like Harlem yeah. or Upper West Side. But in the suburbs, I heard that the, I've heard that the residential market has been very, very fast and strong because people have been trying to get out of the city. Gotcha. People people fleeing the city and trying to move right. to the suburbs. Right. Gotcha. I wonder, too, just sort of you, you talked about, you know, concerns about having COVID in the building and, and things like that. Like, I've thought about that a lot, especially with some of those bigger buildings, you know, in Midtown and stuff where there's a, you know, 30, 40 story apartment building. And, you know, there could be hundreds of units in it. I, I just always thought, thank God I don't live in a building like that during this time of just navigating, you know, elevator etiquette and like, yeah. you know, how many people do you squeeze in? And, and if you get in one on a higher floor and then it stops on a lower floor and someone pushes their way in and you're like, wait, I don't want you. And it just like, how how were people navigating that? Did you talk to people in some of those bigger yeah, buildings and stuff? It, dep- it really has varied building to building. Some buildings are really good. The management's supposed to post signs and you're not supposed to have more than I think two or three people on an elevator. They have to be able to safely be six feet apart. But some buildings have been really good and responsible and the tent, everyone's sort of on board and the culture of the building follows, you know, stays in line. And then other Buildings have not, especially I think you're going to see more in the rentals than in the co-ops and condos, you know, some yeah. owner-occupied buildings. And most buildings in New York are rentals. Right. Some buildings, the, man- the management's not really enforcing the rules. And there doesn't appear to be any real enforcement from the city side. So if you call the health department, they're not going to send out an inspector. If you call 311, they might refer to the sheriff's office, but they're not going to necessarily, there's not necessarily much that's going to happen. So it's really, enforcement really comes down to management and if management 
isn't really concerned with enforcing. You're really up to your neighbors. And so in some buildings, I've talked to tenants who are really anxious and feel very unsafe. And in other buildings, it's the other extreme. They feel that the building is being too tough and they're still right. not letting nannies in and they're still not letting, you know, housekeepers in because each building can make its own rules and they can have rules that are stricter than what the state guidelines are. So some buildings are people feel like are too strict. Um, there's some that have even fined tenants for not wearing masks or attempting wow. to. So it can kind of go either way. Yeah, it is. It's such a weird time. Just it feels like there hasn't been maybe less so in New York. I feel like, you know, the governor anyways has been pretty out front of, you know, trying to stay ahead of this, at least, at least on a PR side. I don't, you know, I, I, it's hard for right. me to judge from a distance the effectiveness, but as, like not having a federal response to this and just sort of everything being piecemeal that, you know, Target and Costco, you have to wear a mask, but some grocery stores you don't or, you know, just that kind of stuff. Like, it sounds like that's happening on the housing side, too, of just, you know, depending on the building you're in and the management and, you know, how it's enforced. Can be a, can make a huge difference, right? And New York's always been like a fife. You know, each building is like its own fiefdom. So each, right. you know, each building has its own culture, and they all sort of operate their own way. And yeah, and so it really, and, and then it depends on the culture of the tenants. You might have older tenants who are more concerned. You might have a building with a bunch of young people who don't who aren't as concerned. Um, so it's going to really depend on who your who your neighbors are. Yeah. And thinking about just shared spaces and stuff, too, you know, so many of those buildings that have like a great roof deck and like, how do you enjoy that? I I guess depending on the size of it, sometimes you can, you know, socially distance up there. But yeah, just the whole value of of what you're paying for feels it feels like you're not getting that full value during this time. Certainly. And if you have any of those, I mean, a lot of these buildings have opened with these really lavish amenity spaces. There's been this sort of amenity race war the last 10 years. And Aside from the outdoor roof deck, those are largely still closed and will be closed. I mean, New York's uh, gyms are not part of the last phase of reopening, which just went into effect this week. And so it's it's anyone's guess when the gyms will open. So a lot of people are very angry that they have paid for these expensive apartments or rent the expensive apartments and can't use the billiard room and the children's playroom and the gym and the golf simulator. Right. That's that's not the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, when I think about renting an apartment. But right, a golf simulator. But you know, yeah, it could be there. It could be, for somebody, the dream. that's desirable. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so you have a new book out that it literally launched like right at the beginning of this, right? Like March seventeenth. No. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that was its release date. Yeah. So. How did that like for for a lot of books? I know there's you know you you go around to bookstores and do readings or you know there's a media blitz or things like that. Like were there were there plans to do things that that had to get halted? Yes, we had a few book events planned. We had a launch party. With, I have a co-author. I wrote it with Michelle Higgins. So we had two book parties planned, um, and everything was canceled. And so, you know, it was disappointing, but it was hard to it was hard. For we were both so wrapped up in what was happening and for both of us i think suddenly work became the story was so huge and so much was happening for so many people at the moment it was hard to spend much time wallowing um i right. think you know in any other time i would have been you know you're, there's so much build up for a book release and you're so excited and then it sort of just fell off a cliff right. and so i certainly was disappointed but it also was a book that suddenly felt very relevant in a way I didn't expect. And so we did have some radio shows and we had some, we did have, continue to have some publicity for it and, um, and some, you know, interviews and things like that, because it, it was really suddenly incredibly important. We had all this to offer in this moment where everyone was literally trying to figure out how to set up a home office. And we have chapters on that and yeah. people are trying to figure out how to cook, how to store their food. And we had chapters on organizing your pantry. So I felt that we were actually quite a relevant book for the moment. 
Um, it was just not a time to celebrate anything. Right. But, you know, I wrote a story about graduates not being able to have their graduation ceremonies and women were canceling their weddings and or their men were canceling their weddings. And so I think that people were missing. There were a lot of life events that people were missing. So it was hard to feel like I wasn't just part of what was happening to everybody. You know, the book was out in the world and it felt very relevant and useful for people. And I think it, it resonated for some people. So it it wasn't the it wasn't the expected it wasn't what I thought I'd get right. but it you know worse things have happened yeah no and it's a it, it is a really comprehensive book it's it's sort of interesting you take it from you know the early kind of buying process of you know how do you make an offer on a house and line up financing and all that all the way through as you as you say organizing and maintaining and it's just it's sort of it's the manual that like you you wish a house came with when you bought it it, <laughs> right. it kind of has everything in there I want to know just you touched on it a little bit earlier but the idea of trying to buy a house right now like when people ask you about that buying a house in July 2020 like what are your thoughts on if people should be heading in that direction well everybody is i mean I, the new market in new york is still very slow the city market but in the yeah. suburbs it is off the rails um i think there are bidding wars uh, you know what i'm hearing anecdotally speaking with brokers and buyers and sellers people are getting 20 bids 15 bids on a house houses i know in some the hot neighbors are selling a hundred thousand dollars over ask wow interest rates are way down houses are selling and what people want you know, people want turnkey houses. They want to move. People are come fleeing the city, really. And I don't like to say that word because I do think that, you know, I have a lot of faith that New York will be okay and it, the market is going to be solid. I think people are leaving, probably were going to anyway, and they maybe are accelerating their plans by a year or two. Yep. But that wave has been coming for a long time and it's been going further and further out from New York. So I can't speak nationally, but regionally, it's, it's a trend that's not new, but it's been accelerated. It's on overdrive right now. And there's an anxiety and like a, it has people, I think, may feel that I have to move right now because there'll be a second wave in September. So mm. it's got to happen now. You know, I think that it's absolutely true that people are moving. I think people's wish lists are really different from speaking with brokers. People want space. They want room for an office. They want room for a gym. They want to have as much houses they can buy, whereas for a long time, the trend was toward walkability in downtown right. and living near the train. And suddenly that doesn't matter. You don't need to live near the train because you may not ever get on the train again, yeah. or at least not for another couple of years. And so people are looking for different kinds of houses than they were before. But I think it's very, it's a very rushed market. So my personal, you know, I, I don't want to seek opinions, but you know, whenever a market is frenzied and it's a seller's market right now, you're buying in a frenzied market. You don't have that much time to look. You don't have much time to go back and bring your mom and see if she likes it. You are going to probably pay more for the house than you might have paid a few months later, or a few months earlier. Yeah. So there's a risk associated with it, but interest rates are low, which is sort of offsets that risk a bit. But you are taking on a risk because we don't know what's happening. And just like the rental market, as I was saying earlier, was where there's this risk of um, people defaulting on their leases. You could have a risk of people foreclosing on their homes once the um, the people deferred on their mortgage. I'm sorry, the word is escaping me, but people deferred on their mortgage payments for several months. Yeah. Those are going to come due soon. Right. Also, just at the time that unemployment insurance is dropping off. So we may have see foreclosures coming down the line, which might depress real estate prices. But all that's speculative and, you know, you have to live in the moment you're in. And if you need a house now, then you need a house now and this is the market you're stuck in. But it's it's a frenzied one and if you don't have to buy, I might 
I, I tend to just be a more cautious person. Yeah. So if it's me, if whenever whenever everybody wants something, I'm always a little <laughs> suspicious. What's the catch? <laughs> yeah. It's funny because we bought our house in 2008. We made the offer in August and we're closing by the end of September of 08. And sort of in those th- that intervening, you know, whatever, six weeks or so is when either AIG or Lehman Brothers, whatever sort of the first domino of the financial crisis right. of 08 oh, fell. And there was this moment of like, what should we do? And we, we thought we had a, a good deal on the house and we're comfortable moving forward. But I remember a lot of the people that, that I was talking to at the time were like, you might want to just wait. Like, I feel like prices are going to drop. And we're fortunate here in Boston that like the bottom never really fell out. And I feel like New York's kind of in the same boat, San Francisco, D.C., you know, these kind of major urban centers sort of weathered that storm OK. But as you say, like, I, I just think about sort of these smaller places that were already hit pretty bad in 08. Yeah. Like, is there is there really a bad second wave coming in terms of housing? I don't know, but that it feels like it might be. It might. I don't know. I remember driving around Portland, Oregon, must have been in 09. And there's just, I remember there were whole streets where it was just, you know, for sale sign on every single house. But that was, you know, its own unique thing. And, and right now we're just in a period of vast uncertainty. And I I wrote just a very brief story right when the house, right in early March when the city was starting to shut down, which is, is now a bad or terrible time to buy, a good or terrible time to buy. And it was it was just sort of like, well, there's all this uncertainty, so you don't know. And of course, now looking back on that, I would say if you were going to buy in the suburbs, it was actually a good time to buy. Yeah. If you were going to buy in the city, it was a terrible time to buy because prices are now going to have to come down because nothing's really moving or they may not, but it's, you would, it would be easier to shop now when things are very slow. So the question was difficult. You can't really predict where things are going to land. Yeah. I wonder too, just thinking back, like at, at the peak of the last, you know, big real estate boom, like, you know, Oh five or so there was a big push and maybe it was just an affordability push, but there was a big push towards, you know, getting a starter home that like start Mm -hmm. small, build up your equity and then trade up, you know, every five to seven years. Do you feel like that's still something people are doing or are people looking more for forever houses now? I mean, I think it really comes down to your your budget. I think millennials are very are a very squeezed generation. Yep. Um, they tend to be buying later. And so when they buy later, they they might not they might end up skipping over the starter home phase a bit because they sort of save up for longer. It takes them a lot longer. They may also settle into the starter. There's also a, a lot of millennials and maybe Gen Xers too who bought an OA and bought the starter home and then never never moved out of it. Yeah. And the interest rates stayed historically low for so long. You have a good deal. And a lot of baby boomers didn't sell. They didn't they didn't downsize like they were supposed to. So there's right. been a lot of shifting trends in how people are living in their homes. So baby boomers have sort of, there wasn't, you know, there's also the baby boomers who are like millennials who want the small walkable home. So then some millennials and boomers didn't ever want that big house. They wanted the little house that was near a walkable area so that they could have a more flexible life. But then now they're seeming to shift again you know, by younger buyers are shifting toward the bigger house so they can have the space since they're not leaving their house. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm always a little cautious in following, you know, and and sort of believing all the trends I hear because I think people buy what they can afford. And I think if you can only afford a three bedroom house on a quarter acre with one and a half bathrooms, then that's what you're going to buy. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and if 10 years later, that's all you can afford, then you're going to stay in it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can afford more, then you'll buy something bigger. Yeah. And, and there's such an emotional piece to it, too. I mean, that's part of the reason why we stayed with the with the sale of our house, you know, buying it 12 years mm-hmm. ago was just 
we loved the house. We loved the setting. We loved the yard. There was a lot that just really sort of struck us about the house. And like, I, I at least for me, I've never been one of those people that sort of views real estate as transactional. <laughs> you know, I view it much more emotionally and much more long term. And I don't know mm-hmm. if that's, you know, maybe it's just different people. I don't know if, if, if either one of those is a trend. Well, there was a shift. I mean, so before the that pre, before 2000, before the housing boom that was sort of 2000 to 2006, 2007, primarily people did buy homes to live in. That the idea of your home as a piggy bank investment yep. that you would put in money and you get a new loan and you would take money out of it because the interest because the value would be forever growing and your home was this investment that was supposed to give you cash. That wasn't really the American lexicon before that. That wasn't how we thought of our homes. And so suddenly there was this whole shift and, you know, sort of, it was also, I think, fueled somewhat by HGTV, but it was also fueled by government, you know, by government, you know, encouragement from, you know, Alan Greenspan and all these in telling us to buy homes and invest in homes. And then there were shows like House Hunters telling us how to buy and yep. you could flip and you could make lots of money and your home was constantly being rising in value and you could always get more. So I think that that became the sort of go-go period of the 2000s. And then, of course, we hit a brick wall. And I think that after that, we were more nervous post-08 about what our homes were and, and that they could fall again, but they were really picking up and home value prices continues, you know, have really ri- risen and are, are expensive and you're still paying a lot for your house. And I don't think we ever fully let go of the notion that our home was an investment. So mm. it was like, you're supposed to be fixed, you know, you're supposed to be putting in a new kitchen. You're supposed to be putting in new bathrooms. You're supposed to be investing. And certainly people had nice houses in the eighties and nineties, you know, and the era of the McMansion predates some of these things. But I think that, this idea that your home is an investment rather than your home is a place that you live out your life. And if you, you know, need a new refrigerator, you should get one, Right. you know, has shifted. And I think that we sort of, we see them in more dollar and cents views than we see them as a place to live. Because yeah. again, if you're going to overpay for a house and you can afford it, but it's a house you love. And as you said, it's at a great location and it's a home you want to be in and you're going to be in it for 15 years. It doesn't matter that much, you know, except you're paying more every month for it than you might have otherwise. Yeah, but it's it's hard to know. <laughs> you know, it's it's all theoretical because it's it's so speculative, I guess, and it's it's two people coming to an agreement on a price that you know there's comps and stuff that play into it, but it's not, you know, th- there's no manual that says okay, no. like, three bedroom house in this zip code is is this much money, you know? No, a home is only worth what worth what two people are willing to pay and sell it for, yeah, you know, and that, totally. that is what it's worth. Um, you mentioned HGTV and sort of how that changed the culture. And I know you, you've reported on them a lot and, and talked about them a lot, and you know, sort of their... <laughs> Yeah, well, and for a lot of people too. I mean, first of all, I'm just sort of curious, like, why you think they're doing so well during this time? Like, there's something about just sort of the the comfort food of that network. I think, right? Do, do you do you pick up on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there. I'm kind of fascinated by it because it's like you go to the gym. Well, not anymore, but you would go to the gym and it's on, and it would it was like such an odd it's such an odd thing that that's the thing that's always on, right? You know, just people looking at houses or fixing up houses. Um, I think they did a great job of sort of hitting on this. Like, you know, houses are hard. They're like, especially if you have a house that needs work, it's a lot of work. It's hard to like renovating a kitchen is like a huge undertaking. That's such a grind and takes so long and yeah. it's so expensive and complicated. Right. And here they found a way to like magically do it in 30 minutes and you get this great reveal at the end. And so it's 
you know, it's easy TV. You can kind of binge on it. You don't have to, there's no commitment. And you can also like hate watch it with your partner and you can decide, you know, of course they're going to pick the wrong house. So there's a <laughs> sort of a contestness to it. Yeah. But then always the characters, like the, the buyers, they're always like sort of quasi anonymous. There's like not a real person there. So yeah. you can sort of, I think you can project yourself into it and mm. you can become like, they're a placeholder for you because they're not too personalized. Yeah. And you're always really smart and you're always going to make the right decisions because you're not actually making the decisions. And so, you know, they also have enough guy stuff to keep, you know, with the sledgehammers. Right. And, and they, and they certainly, the executives that they picked those shows, those shows for those reasons because it appeals to male viewers. Yeah. They like seeing uh, walls come down and, and things like that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you get a few ideas. I don't know how much like useful ideas people get. But it's like you get a sort of a look, like there's this HGTV look that yeah. I see at homes, and it's like very home goods kind of look, which is I think changed the aesthetic of the American home. Very much, um, yeah. And it's it's uh, Instagram plays into that too. I think that there there is yeah. a piece that like people want these gram worthy houses <laughs> that to me I don't know because you know I, I produced Ask the Soul House for so many years, and that show was we were making I don't know. Uh, 50, 60 house calls a year to places all across the country. So you end up seeing a lot of houses and, you know, you tour a lot more that you don't shoot. So like I'd see 75 houses in a year, let's say something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was just sort of this, they lacked a, they lacked a hominess, I guess. Like when you go in a house like that, you just be like, well, it's cute and it's going to look good on, on Instagram or, you know, Pinterest, but it doesn't feel like it feels too decorated right well it's like the sort of grayish walls and like a ship lap and then yep. like these sort of white sofas and everything is very white and gray and there's not much color and they look great on instagram and yep. they and like glass vases and everything is sort of candles but it doesn't look like your home like where you pick something out because it's colorful i mean i'm you know it's not necessarily my style you know yeah. i you know i have a sort of a it doesn't it can look like it could be replicated anywhere right so some of it looks like a like it's staged you know so then you see that look come play out in people's actual homes where they actually live but it you know it also has given people a sense of taste like not everybody knows color or you know or design or not everybody has that background and then this is a way to sort of have a house that looks really nice and presentable yeah in a very simple way where you can't really you can't really mess up right I'm curious too. You said something earlier, just sort of about being able to project yourself onto the people on that network, and just there. I feel like there's a weird sort of contrast between shows like Property Brothers or House Hunters, where you know the people are only identified usually by first name. There's no last name. There's usually no town. You know, like you're you're not really sure sort of where they are. And Property Brothers sometimes you're like, is this Canada (laughs) or like is it LA? Like you you can't always tell. But then there's very specific shows like Hometown or uh, the Chip and Joanna show. I'm blanking on the name right now. But, um, you know, like that right. that's very much about. Fixer yeah, Fixer yeah. Upper. Thank you. It's very much about like Waco or, or Laurel, Mississippi or whatever. Those two worlds, I guess, of sort of the very generic and the very specific. <laughs> like, why do those shows resonate? with those two shows, Fixer Upper and Hometown, it's still about the host, not mm. so much the guest. That's true. So if you think about fixer upper it's chip and joanna that they've made the show and they i mean certainly they've set the tone for this whole new genre and she has this very specific design look that i think designers respect you know i think it's really her thing but they it's them i mean it's 
if you can, I, I can't remember any of the specific people that much. You right. sort of, they come in and they're there. And so you can project onto them. And Joanna's the one who's going to tell you how to make this house look great. Yeah. Also those two, those, in both cases, the hosts are very approachable. Yep. So they, they're sort of the everyman designer rather than this high end designer that makes you feel intimidated and, and uses bespoke, you know, fabrics and, and wall finishings and talks in, you know, complicated language about texture and color. And, and they don't, they're yeah. very approachable and ordinary. And so there's something about them that is very appealing because it's, it's very calming to feel like, Oh, okay. I'm not yeah. going to, you know, I'm not going to make a mistake. And they've got all their kids on their farm. And, you know, so they've sort of set this idea that like, there's homes where you can make your home this absolutely perfect place where everything will be just right and there'll be just the right throw pillow and just the right blanket and and you know you put enough a big huge clock on the wall and it'll look like this amazing farmhouse even if you're living in like suburban new jersey where you're nowhere near a farm yeah Uh, i I was just thinking about i think people read designers as pretentious often and i think that's kind of what you were touching on there that it's something for for elitists. It's something for people that really care about this stuff and that, yeah, they've, they've made it accessible and that it's just, it's simple things that, you know, it's reclaimed wood that you can pick up sometimes out of a dumpster or, you know, break apart a pallet or something like that. It right. Yeah. Right. And who has $8,000 for a sofa? Right. And, and so they don't, you don't have to have that and you can have, you know, you can have this very approachable life. I mean, I think, you know, you coming from this old house, there's a different, what was interesting, I think what what this old house did, which I think was interesting is it was a more of an educational show at its core and it sort of remained that. So with this old house, if you watch that, you might actually learn how to like plane a door or something, or you might actually learn something about spackling and enough that you may not, you may still need to get additional information to spackle and paint properly, but you get a sense of what you're getting into and they, in those shows, you have a closer relationship with the homeowner somewhat, but that's more of, I think, where that show is resonating is, like, I, I sort of, I liken HGTV to, like, people who watch cooking shows. Like, you yeah. watch cooking shows, you may not actually ever cook, you know, but if you watch Julia Child, you might have actually cooked, yeah. right? And, and actually, I think this old house and Julia, Julia Child are the same creator. But, yeah, uh, yeah, Russ Morash. Right, so, like, you would, it actually was, ed, there was an educational component, whereas I think that the cooking shows on the Food Network are very much like HGTV. Like there's something satisfying. Like you don't, you may never make like spaghetti carbonara, but like it's fun to watch other people do it. Yeah, to see the process, to see the before and after and the transformation and just be like, oh yeah, that was cool. <laughs> and as you say, you turn off the TV and <laughs> it's out of your head. Right, and I don't think you leave Property Brothers with any real sense of what is involved with like putting cabinets into a wall. Yeah. Whereas I think in this old house you did. You may not get enough to actually put the cabinets in but you get a sense of like is this something i can do or not yeah totally uh on the this whole house thing you know i'm really curious just because you wrote this amazing feature for the 40th anniversary of the show uh last year and were there when uh all three hosts uh, bob vila steve thomas and kevin o'connor were together in this this townhouse in new york and you got to talk to homeowners and you know russ morash and just sort of you interviewed a lot of people for that feature like yeah what did you walk away from learning about this old house or just your impression mm. of it? I'm just curious, sort of as an outsider, what you thought. Um, that's a great question. What did I learn? I mean, it was, it was, I was fascinated that the hosts had never met. Yeah. That really amazed me that they had sort of each kind of come into this place 
but there was, of course, the cast was there, so there was this support. But that was interesting that they had never overlapped at all. Um, it was also really interesting how how these homes really were renovated by like Tom Silva and Norm Abram. Like that really happened. Right. That in a way that you, I suppose you think it's happening, but um, talking to the homeowners and what their experiences was like, that they really had their home done by these people, and they had they, those were it was really their contractor, and yeah. that's how and they and they really did have this whole renovation done, and that was really sort of fascinating to see. And there was this sort of blueprint that's like never that ha, that sort of has held true, that sort of hasn't really shifted that much. They've gotten a little bit, you know, certainly scene cuts are shorter, and the show is has modernized in that way. You know, it doesn't because I have watched a you know, dozens of episodes yeah. while I was doing this. So certainly the episodes in the 90s had a very different feel than the episodes today. But it was neat. It was also neat that how many people kind of grew up watching this old house. And that was sort of what was most interesting to me was the reader comments afterwards and letters mm. I got. Like more than a lot of other stories where you get letters from people, people were very, you know, where was Norm in the story? And of course it couldn't have everybody. Right. People who, these loyal viewers who had watched the show for, for 40 years and felt really attached to these attached to this cast. And, and that loyalty was really interesting because I don't know if there are that many shows that have that kind of loyalty and longevity, yeah. you know, I mean, how many, I mean, the Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, of, of older shows, like shows that have been on forever, you know, a lot of them fall into news type category, you know, meet the press and stuff has been on a million years. Uh, soap operas are sometimes in that category, but there's there's not a lot of other, you know, sort of certainly not home improvement shows, but even, you know, bigger picture like lifestyle shows. There's not a lot that that have that longevity. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, too, was the host sort of perspective on how we've changed. I mean, one thing was really interesting, like, you know, the Bob Vila said is that it's become because of because of Home Depot. Yeah it's much easier to do DIY stuff than it was 40 years ago, that more people can try it, more people can do it. And then Kevin added that was interesting was that because of YouTube, anybody can kind of get on YouTube and figure something out. Yeah. And, and that wasn't even there 10 years ago. Right. And that that's allowed. Um, and I certainly think this old house of this website, you know, has been able to sort of capitalize on that and give people tools. I've certainly used those websites on like how to power wash your deck. And I'm like, I don't know. I'll go check. Yeah. <laughs> see what see what Tom has to say yeah and um so that I think has made the show in some ways and that's maybe where it's shifted it's become more little slices of activities you can do and I think you know we've become in some ways a more of a DIY culture or at least more people I think give it a go whereas I think maybe you had to really know what you were doing yeah a while ago. It, it's funny just how YouTube, it, it really changed the way, at least on Ask This Old House, we produced differently. You know, when I started producing for that show, it was 2010, I think was my first year, something like that, 2011. Mm -hmm. And um, you would follow the journey of a project wherever it took you. So if, you know, the toilet was leaking and it turned out that some floorboards had rotted and, you know, so you're going to have to replace those. It, like sometimes you'd be four minutes into a story that's going to be eight minutes long and it still wasn't really clear what the central thesis was. It was just like, mm -hmm. well, we've got to repair this. This is what we're doing. We're fixing this thing right in front of us. And as YouTube became more popular and, and segments got broken down, uh, you know, as little six, eight minute clips for YouTube, like you would think as you're producing it, like, what is this thing going to be called? And if somebody's searching for that, you know, how to power wash mm -hmm. a deck, like, am I meeting them in that first minute or two? 
am I satisfying that that urge that they've they've Googled and found this video? Or is how to power wash a deck going to start with you have to prune back these bushes because they're part of, you know, they're shading your deck. And it was just always this constant sort of tension between like, what's the right information? How do you convey that? And how do you still make sure that you're walking away with something bite-sized? And that was, you know, it was a tough dance to try to figure that out because you're making both a TV show and uh, and a digital segment, essentially, at the same time. That is interesting. And it also then, in some ways, gets away from the mission of this old house sure. of it, which is you just power wash the deck. You don't start by pruning back the trees, which would be like the show. Which yeah. Is, well, there's these bushes. And then, oh, and look at some of the de- the floor. These boards on the deck are rotted, so now we have to replace these. Right, and- right. And you'd have a whole thing. And so, right, so it kind of, YouTube is almost like counter to it because it's, you know, it's got to be three minutes or four minute clip. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different ball game. Um, I, I have one last question for you that is sure. something that I always struggled with. And I saw it's a chapter in your book. I didn't get that far. So I, I'm I'm curious if you'll let me skip ahead and, and indulge you with but this. Go right ahead. It's, it's a book you're meant to flip back and forth. We even have like turn to page 173. There you go. Um, well, so it's it's choosing the right paint color. Like that is something that I've asked designers, I've asked painters, I've never gotten a straight answer on. And I see that you guys have have a chapter in the book about that or a section in the book about that. Like what, what advice did you learn in terms of helping people choose the right color for their house? Okay. I think what I've learned, because I do think paint is so hard, um, but I do feel like I've kind of gotten it, is that you have to like let go of what you, what you want yep. specifically in your favorite color and look at what you're working with. So like what is the color of your floors? Like, what is the color of your furniture? So, like, if you have really dark navy dark navy sofa and dark floors, you probably don't want to go dark with, like, even though if you had some cool, bold color you wanted to do, it might just look dark unless that's the look you want, yeah. right? So you kind of have to think, like, what is the space I'm in? And then pick, look for your colors in concert with that. In terms of sampling, you should really prime first, as mm. annoying as that is, because otherwise you're painting white on top of yellow walls and so that color is going to bleed through so you're not really looking at the color you're going to get so priming as tedious as that sounds although there are some cool like stickers you can now order online oh um, yeah sure like sample eyes and stuff yeah but again that's if you, I, you can use that to narrow things down but you do really want to try a real sample and then you know think about where you're going to be able to see that color from, if you, especially if you're going with like a bold color, like will you be able to see the di- you know, the red, di- luscious red dining room from the living room, and do those two colors complement each other? Because there's all these like the colors got undertones and overtones, and there's it's 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 more than just a flat blue, yeah, right. you know. And so, you know, you want to sort of look for like a richness and saturation, but try them out. One thing too, which is a cool little tip. Michelle found was that when you pick a color, then write it and write it down on a piece of tape and stick it on the back of your um, like of your light switch cover mm. so that you remember the name so that if you ever need to touch up, you know what you got. Yeah. And it's it's in the room. It's not hidden in a drawer somewhere or you know, right. in the it's notes in the room, app on your you know, phone. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, I think I'm a big fan of fun. I, I do not I do not like grays just on my personal. I try to avoid it. I did actually, when I first moved into my house, painted a couple bedrooms gray, and we have yet to repaint them, and they now seems so dreary to me. When it's time, I was like, ooh, this is so cool and trendy. Yeah. I think, like, you know, I think it's fun to, you know, color is fun, and I'm a big I'm a big fan of, of color. I know a lot of architects are very purist, and they're white, but I, I like white, too. 
you know, I also think like white is good, you know, but also think when you think of your paint, think about your, you know, your moldings and the windows and are you going to do those white? Or are you going to do the same? Or are you going to do like a high gloss and you're going to do matte for the, for the walls? You got to think about your ceiling. So all those things kind of play into each other and they can sort of change the tone. You could have more, you know, with the borders, you could have like a really different color. You could have, you know, you could have white with, you know, with a color or you could have it all the same and it sort of more blends. I hope is that more helpful than other people that I demystify color. Yeah, some. Not? I mean, the, the, the I, I feel like the hard thing for me is just looking like let's say I decide on a blue and then I pull like the blue chip that has like six different tones of blue in it. And right. I'm like, I think I like that one. And usually when it's on the wall, it's either too dark or too light. Like I'm off by like one shade, you know? You know what I did? What I found is super helpful is I type in the color into Pinterest. Mm. And so I'll be like, uh, you know, I did, I think I did, I have a very cool, I love my till in dining room. It is North Sea Green by Benjamin Moore. So I uh-huh. remember typing in North Sea Green. And then there was another, was like Galapagos Blue. I can't believe I remember all these names. <laughs> and I would type them in. And I, they may not always have been that color in the room, you know, but you would see dozens of North Sea Greens. And you'd be like, oh, okay, this is yep. kind of what it looks like. So I find that that is doing that before you start getting the paint is helpful. And then there's certain, like, there are, especially with different brands, there are certain colors that are, more popular for a reason you know they're good solid colors but i was looking for like a white for the living room and i want it to be warm but bright and crisp and you and i ended up with like simply white and that was the color you know and it was like i looked online and then i tried it i would sort of like do pinterest searches for a room color for a blue you like and you say i like that blue and then you got to figure out what is that blue and sometimes on pinterest or house or instagram somebody will say what's that blue and the person who actually posted it will reply Mm. If it's a real picture, you know, a lot of them are faux pictures, you know, but you can get us. And of course, you've got to remember whatever you're looking at on Pinterest is professionally lit. It's not actually the color, but it will get you closer rather than you ending up with like a peacock blue when really you wanted something that was a richer, darker blue, but maybe you don't want it to be quite. So like if you're looking for a good navy, you say, okay, hail navy is really popular. Well, what are some other ones? There's like gentleman's gray and you sort of look it up and then you're looking and you say, okay, well, it looks a little greener, but that's okay. You know, so you kind of get closer to what you envision, but think about, you know, like, and also if you're trying to look for some cool, bold color, you might want to, like when when I picked out my North Sea green, I had a little bit of teal in one of my, in my dining room uh, chair. And so I matched it with a swatch. Gotcha. Yeah, I find those like the popular color stuff to be really helpful. Like Ben Moore has like the book of, you know, like a bedroom book or a dining room book, a living room book. And you can kind of look in there and just see, okay, there's two blues instead of, you know, 40 blues <laughs> like that. Right. That helps me a lot. It does. They have 4,000 colors, but people don't really use 4,000 colors. Yeah. You right. know, and so, and then there's all these new like online paint companies that just have a very like curated little bundle, like what is called um, Claire. And the other one I think is Bax. I can't remember. I'm sorry, but Claire, definitely. And they have these very cool, like, 25 colors. I think they just have 55 colors, and so it's just theirs. And that's kind of a relief because you don't have to make a choice. Right, right. Of course, you have to like those colors. (laughs) All right, Rhonda Kaysen. I'm still not sure that I know how to pick the right paint color. I feel like she got me closest to anybody in answering that question. But I kind of just want somebody to say... You know what you're looking for is Robin's Egg Blue or whatever it is. I don't know. I feel like there are just too many choices and it confuses the heck out of me. 
Go check out Rhonda's book, The New York Times, Write at Home, How to Buy, Decorate, Organize, and Maintain Your Space, co-written with Michelle Higgins. It's awesome. It is, like I said in the interview, it's the book that you wish your house came with. It's like having an owner's manual for your house. There's a lot of good stuff in there. All right. Thank you for joining me today. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me some comments. Let me know what you like, who you want me to interview next. And uh, also leave a rating or a review. New show coming up on Monday. Make sure you subscribe to get that in your feed. I'll talk to you then. Stay safe.